I'm Kyra Kellowan, an international educator with experience of careers and college counselling in schools and universities across four countries. You're listening to The Piloted Podcast, a show about innovation in education for teachers, parents and students. Hello, and welcome back to episode six of the Piloted Podcast. One of the absolute best parts of the work that I've been lucky enough to do over the years is to go and meet other career counsellors and university representatives from around the world at international conferences. Last year, I was lucky enough to meet an impressive woman called Laura Kaub, who's worked for the African Leadership Academy and the Yale Young African Scholars Programme. And right now I'm making a commitment to bring her onto this podcast in the future. But she listened to the former episodes of the podcast and suggested that I talk to her colleague and friend, Corey Johnson, who she described to me as an absolute unicorn. So with such praise from a trusted colleague, I went over to see what Corey does, and he runs Imagine Scholar. Set up 10 years ago in rural South Africa to provide a unique and personalized education to promising, motivated youth from disadvantaged communities, Corey's program has seen hundreds of talented young South Africans join universities at home and abroad and go to selective educational programs with full scholarships across the world. But what stood out to me most was this simple phrase on Corey's LinkedIn page. He says, My greatest passion is creating a world where good kids who work hard and do the right thing have great lives. It was such a simple, brilliant ethos, and it was someone that I knew then Pilot Ed should meet and talk to. I'm really glad, first of all, that you could join me here on the podcast. And it's been such a cool journey on this podcast, Corey, meeting people through other friends who've listened and then who've said, hey, you should talk to so-and-so. And you were one of those people who I met virtually through through Laura. I didn't know much about your journey. I didn't know much about Imagine Scholar. And then I started digging and it was super exciting. So I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how, how on earth you landed in South Africa. <laughs> where are yeah. you? Tell us a bit about where you're from, where you grew up, and then your journey there. I started out my career doing various kind of business-y things. And I ended up in South Africa. I was actually going back to graduate school. And I got an opportunity for another project to end up in this rural community in South Africa for a project. And it was one of those things in some way almost cliche of, you know, I was there and an opportunity presented itself. I was staying in an orphanage Mm -hmm. and there was this amazing kid, you know, all the kids would come and they wanted help with their homework or they they wanted me to do their homework for them. (laughs) And he was just so inquisitive and so interesting. And, you know, he'd finish his exams and come by then that night and say, hey, can we go over these? And he was just such a good kid too, just such a kind person. And that was really the origin of just saying, hey, this is a pretty special kid and nobody's really working with him. You know, he's not failing. So he's not a big concern for the teachers. And so it started off kind of working with him and then took in a very small pilot group of five students. But there was no intentionality that this was going to become an organization. It was just, oh, this is like, this is a really exciting idea and kind of following a curiosity. How did we get, how did you get from, okay, I'm here doing a master's, I'm going to work in business to, no, actually, I'm going to change course. And I think that my life's work is actually to work with young people. Was it that immediate or did something more happen in between? No, I mean, to be honest, a lot of it was about kind of going down a path and realizing it just isn't where I wanted to go. I was doing land development consulting, and there was just a sense that I didn't really want to be doing that. That's the main thing I knew. So Mm -hmm. I headed off, applied to graduate school. I just said, I know I want to do something different. And I ended up 
in Thailand and I met somebody through a college acquaintance. And so he sent me over for a somewhat related idea, like a scholarship program. So I was going to be doing a vetting students for a scholarship program. So that was really the story. There was no intention. I, I would never have guessed I'd want to be an educator. It just was not on my radar whatsoever. I started working with this student just kind of informally. And the idea, the idea was to create a scholarship program. And so I went to the original funder and said, you know, there's lots of scholarships. Unfortunately, you know, we're in a very rural part of South Africa, just on the Mozambique and Iswatini border, a place called the Ankamazi. And I said, you know, there's lots of scholarships, but the reality is students are failing when they get to university. So students from rural communities in South Africa who start university, who actually step into class, have somewhere around an 85% failure rate. So throwing money at the problem isn't really the challenge. You know, there's something that's causing these very bright students who are getting the scores to get into university to fail. And so I thought, you know, this is an interesting challenge. I'd love to spend a little bit of time and see if I can help out. But the thought was to be there for, you know, maybe a year and then I'll go back to my, you know, kind of my normal life and get back into the flow of things. And, you know, once I started working with the students, you realize it's just, it's such an amazing, you know, intellectual challenge to say, wow, you know, here you have really engaged, really interesting young people. How do we figure out how to navigate this space? Because the interest, the desire, this talent, all of those things are there, but there's some block that's causing them to struggle. So when you quoted that figure just now, is that the success slash failure rate at South African universities that you were quoting? Yeah, so that's in institutions in South Africa. And I don't, I can't tell you exactly where I saw that quote. Um, yeah. South Africa has an incredibly unequal education. So most students who come from any kind of means will go to a private school. So they have a really well-established private school system. Kids who come from those private schools have an incredibly high graduation rate. And students who come from rural public schools, especially deep rural schools such as ours, have an incredibly high attrition rate. And that's kind of baked into the system. And, and the sad thing is they're all public universities. So the idea that these students coming from rural communities are having such a challenge, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's, you know, in some ways it's a, it's an embarrassment. And, and again, it's not that the kids don't have the talent or the ability. It's just the structure's not set up for them to be successful. How did you decide what age and what kind of profile an imagined scholar was going to be? My story is going to be a, a tale of trial and error. <laughs> I, I, my background wasn't in education. I think the good thing I had going for me was a pretty strong dose of humility of not knowing what I was doing. So I just kind of took a sh stab in the dark, to be honest. So, you know, we started in grade nine. And then I reached out to all the local NGOs in the community and said, hey, if through your staff and through your networks, can you find some students that would be interested? And we did kind of a, a camp. And from that camp, I think we brought about 50 students in. We did some interviews. And what we were originally looking for has shifted a lot. And one of the things that I, is kind of one of the foundations of the program, you know, a lot of times we talk about democratizing education. I think that's a bit of a buzzword, but I think we're a, we're a very clear example of that. We started out with just me and these five students. And so we basically made the decisions together. So we decided how many days we would come. We decided what curriculum we would do. We try things out for a month and say, hey, you know, I think this worked and this didn't. And everything from, you know, they actually selected the next class of students. So once we went into the next year, the interview committee was myself and the five students. And that's become a real hallmark of the program. We started out as a four hour a week program. We're now a 26 hour a week program on top of school. So our, our students all go to full-time school. They come 26 hours a week on top of it. But that was all decided by students. So a lot of the journey has been Let's try something out. Let's get your feedback. Let's evolve, adapt, you know, ideate. And, and I think it's, it's one of the things I think that's really helped our 
program be successful, but it wasn't, it wasn't some grand plan. <laughs> right. But I think that's what makes a successful way of working with young people. And we are hearing that, you know, in other interviews I've held with other people, that's kind of the main thing that comes through. Involve your students and let them be a part of creating, co-creating whatever it is that you're making, because then they feel accountable and they feel involved in a way that it cannot be if it's just this kind of top-down didactic form of learning. But that already seems like a huge impact to have had to get 50 students onto the program. How how was that being um, supported or, or funded, I guess, at that stage in that first iteration? We started out, we had, you know, we had no money really. So what it was, was we just reached out to nonprofits in the area and said, you know, hey, if you know students. And it was, it was an amazing cross-section of students. So there wasn't really some gatekeeper that said, you know, a student needs to have this or this. It was saying, you know, hey, who wants to be part of something? And so we brought them all together. And the idea from the onset was to figure out what kind of students are we looking for? And, and from the beginning, and this is the, the hallmark of what we're looking for in students, is we're looking for who really wants to be part of something. Sometimes the, the variables, we often look for, you know, who's, you know, has good test scores or who's very charismatic or, you know, who's um, kind of past these normal standard metrics. Mm-hmm. I think what we were saying is, well, actually, who wants to be in this program? And I, I think we, we come at that in a lot of different ways. So our, our interview process, because we're based in a community, it is a seven-month process. So the students basically go through an, almost an entire year of curriculum. And it's not meant to be an interview process. It's meant to be a really good year of curriculum. And what you find through that year is is who's really into it, who really wants to be there. We always do kind of cheeky things where we'll say, hey, you know, we're offering an optional grammar lesson at 7 a.m. on Saturday. You know, you don't need to come. It's completely, (laughs) you know, it's completely optional. But the student who shows up at 6.30 and is waiting at the gate with their notebook, it doesn't matter to me what their test scores are. That's the kind of student we're looking to work with. Right. Yeah. They're self-selecting, I guess, in that respect. So you co you co kind of produced the education that the students wanted, and and you've said yourself, and you're very upfront about the fact that you don't have a background as an educator, and yet you seem to me as somebody who's naturally picked up on lots of facets of kind of best practice of education. Who were your mentors in that respect then, with um with creating the program itself? Yeah, I mean we've tried to creatively borrow any good idea we can find from every facet. You know, a lot of, I think the inspiration for our program has maybe come outside of the education sphere. We have this saying, you know, this kind of one of our driving mantras, which is, you know, we're not trying to create good 16 year olds. We're trying to empower great 30 year olds. So a lot of what we've done is tried to reverse engineer people who have been really successful. And, and by success, I think we meet a very broad range. I, I don't think we mean accomplishments or careers or what institution people went to, but who are happy and healthy, interesting 30-year-olds? Mm-hmm. And what, what do they do? And what are the actual skills and mindsets that they have? So it really has been a broad, broad, broad range. I think things like you know, mindfulness is a really important part of our curriculum. You know, we do a lot of, you know, we do a lot of project-based learning and design thinking and a lot of kind of the in vogue education stuff that's going on now. You know, one of my biggest kind of most impactful moments as uh, an educator, there's a great book by Seth Godin called uh, Stop Stealing Dreams, I think. It's a very short free book on his website and I I absolutely love it. But there's this this brilliant point he makes and I I won't get the quote right, but it's basically that 
there's this universal truth that anyone who is great is great because they chose to become great. You know, every great doctor or musician, somewhere along the way, they made that choice. And oftentimes in education, we take away the student's agency and choice. And what we try to do is we pave perfect paths. So we have these amazing schools where everything is ideal and everybody gets through. And I think what we're trying to do is kind of flip that on top of itself and and say, how do we make a lot of opportunities to choose, a lot of opportunities to fail and to choose to become what you want to become? And I think that focus is actually probably the driving force of what we do. Because in life, oftentimes, you know, we have these beautiful, perfect paths that we pave for students. But when you look at actual real life, you know, life as a 30-year-old, it's, it's, it's not a highway. It's not like a perfectly laid out structure. It's more of a jungle. And you need to know how to, you know, kind of carve your own path through it. Absolutely. I mean, it really chimes with with work I do as a kind of careers and the university counselor where you're trying to tell students about life is not never a straight line. And whatever you think the next achievement is that you're going to, that's going to make you happy, that's going to make your life perfect, is never quite what it turned out to be. So the things you say already echo so many other great educators in terms of that kind of resilience and, and also neuroplasticity. That's what the last episode was about, just the brain's ability to to kind of change, but you have to put the effort in and you have to have that positive mindset. And it sounds like that's absolutely what you're working with. I've listened to the, the last episode and I, I think that idea, we use a program called Brainology by Carol Dweck, I think it put it together. And we yeah. do it with all of our grade nine students and our entire grade nine curriculum is actually about cognition. So it's about understanding your own hardware and software. And we use that as kind of the foundation phase coming in. And I think the idea oftentimes with our students is basically trying to give them agency and just say that, you know, it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what your tendencies, it doesn't matter what your mindsets or your you know temperaments are, that everything is malleable. And you create one of the, the kind of the, the pieces of the program that I think is maybe a little different is we have incredibly tight feedback loops. Students are getting mentored and coached on every facet and they're giving feedback. So part of the system is every session, students are giving feedback to the facilitator and students are running a lot of sessions. So you create this where feedback is really encouraged, where students are, are constantly coming up to you and saying, hey, you know, I've been, I've been working on a planner. How do you think I can make this a little bit more efficient? So it's, it's less of like a push out education system and more, you know, it's, it's in some ways kind of like, like a, an executive coaching session where yeah. you're constantly working with students to say like, how do you get a little bit better at this or a little bit better at this? But a lot of the foundation of that really comes from understanding that you can change, that you will change and, and having the older students be the kind of the beacons of that idea, you know, so often, you know, when you ask students who are your role models, when they start off, it's Nelson Mandela and celebrities. And by the end of it, it's almost always an older student. And that idea of positive peer pressure, you know, I think peer pressure is one of the most powerful forces for both good and evil. (laughs) But when you get it working, our our program, I'm very proud of our curriculum, and we've worked really hard. And but to be honest, if you took the kind of kid we work with a kid who really wants to be there, and you just locked them in a room and you just said, hey, who do you want to be? And you let them sit there for 20 hours a week. They're going to become something good because it's, it's just that example of being around other positive people and really curating a space of positivity, of excitement, of inspiration, of high expectations that I think kind of feeds on itself. What are some of the biggest 
challenges that you face in amongst all of this positivity and amongst all of the great work that you're doing, there must be days where you feel like it's a lot. You've taken on a big chunk of things to do. What are they? What keeps you up at night? (laughs) That's an interesting one. I think being a a small nonprofit in an obscure corner of the world, it's difficult to shine a light on what we're doing. I think it's it's difficult to to attract investors when you're not trying to to grow just incessantly. When you're saying, you know, our, our goal, you, I often use the term like a craftsman or a boutique program. We're trying to to create something that's just really good, and we're making what we do open source and available. If people want, you know, we kind of use the term like a test kitchen. You know, we're we're really working hard at, at doing a great job, but it's, it's it can be hard to bring people into that space. But on the organizational or the student side, I think sometimes it's difficult to make our students really stand out in an environment that basically focuses on things that for better or worse, we just don't care about. Like I don't care about SAT scores. I don't care really personally about academic scores in the sense of them being a parameter of anything. For us, what we're saying is we're looking for, I mean, the actual person, you know, and and I think sometimes that can get lost a little bit in the shuffle. What I sometimes struggle with is to show somebody that, hey, you know, Anybody, you can help get students to kind of work towards the test. But I think the idea of saying there's real traits out there that we're all looking for, every institution is looking for, you know, we're looking for grit and we're looking for, are you a good person? Do you have personal accountability? Do you have an intrinsic value of learning? And I think sometimes like a student in our program spends a hundred hours a month for four and a half years. I mean, almost 5,000 hours of their own volition. Nobody told them to come. And that's something really special. And it's hard to get that to jump off a a piece of paper to someone and say, that actually really like, that's why our students are successful. You know, we've been very fortunate at this point, every student in our program has been able to go to university. Every student at this point has been able to graduate. Obviously that won't last forever, but a lot of that, you know, in my opinion, is because of teaching this intrinsic value of of making the program something that students actually choose to come to. We often say that if you're in our program, you don't get anything. You don't get a certificate. You don't get a t-shirt. All you get is what you put in your head. And if you do that for four or five years and you tap into students' intrinsic value of learning, there's something really, really special happens. And when students get to university, it's like, I'm not surprised they're successful because they've been practicing working on their own and actually being autodidactic in a, in a really genuine sense for, you know, five years. What about the students? You said, obviously, you know, you, you don't care. You're not putting those pressures on them about their, those metrics. What do they think? Are they, are they stressing out about SAT scores? Are they, are they hyping each other up about those extracurricular things that get other students in other schools tied up in knots? You know, to be honest, you know, we're, we're in some ways insulated from a lot of that. You know, we don't really have a lot of parents that are, are putting a lot of pressure on students. You know, they're very grateful if a student's able to go to any institution. So we, we in some ways are, are fortunate in that way. We don't have a lot of push from the outside. Obviously, our students and parents care about, you know, getting good, getting good grades. We, we made a little bit of a, a wager five or six years ago where we said, we're going to stop doing any academic content. We worked really hard and we spent a lot of our time trying to get students to pass the end of high school exam, which is the matric. And it just felt a bit like a dead end because we could put all this effort in and then they would get the scores. But then there was no, there was no transfer of those skills. So what we, what we said is, what if we treated school like a critical thinking challenge? What if we said, hey, you know, this is, these schools are, are not perfect. You know, there, there's a lot of difficulties. 
what if we said, okay, let's take all of these critical thinking skills and let's, uh, let's apply those to the academic process. So that's all we do now is we basically say, okay, you all want to get good marks. You know, that's kind of your job at the moment. We're going to teach you how to plan your day, how to like learning strategies, how to deal with, you know, mindsets. And that's going to be your kind of like one of your fundamental projects is working on this. And the students have done really well. So it's not, I shouldn't say we don't care. It's just not one of our major learning objectives. You know, I I think we treat academics the same as we treat them creating service projects. I think we treat it in the exact same way. So it's saying, hey, we really want you to do a good job of this critical thinking project. But the goal is not that you end up with perfect all sevens on your report. The goal is that you actually learn the foundational skills to deal with challenges and you you learn a mindset of dealing with broken systems. Because one of the things, you know, a lot of people have said, why don't you become a school? Because then you, you know, you're basically seeding over seven hours every day to a school system that really struggles. You know, our, our students are in classrooms of 80 students, one teacher sitting on the blackboard writing stuff in chalk and they write it down and regurgitate it. It's obviously not in line with a lot of like what we're trying to do, but I actually am really thankful that, you know, we haven't done that in the sense that I like that our students deal with systems that have challenges because the real world has challenges. You know, if they're going to get a job at the local hospital or being a social worker or being a teacher at one of those local schools in the future, those are challenging systems. And I think getting used to dealing with, you know, really difficult challenges, I think it's a really, really valuable skill. And I think the students that you're attracting, as you've said, you know, through that selection, that self-selection, they're going to be academically capable. They're going to be bright to begin with. So what you're building in them is all of those other soft skills, the seven C's, the resilience, the grit, and the mindset that means that they can follow up on the sort of latent intelligence they will already have. Yeah. And I, and I think oftentimes when you take a long range approach of saying, we're, we're not really prepping you to be successful in high school, and we're not really saying our goal is to prep you for university, we're, we're saying when you get to that point in your life where you're making real decisions and that's what we're aiming towards. I think a lot of times those skills do have transfer. I think a lot of us look back and say, you know, if I could go back to high school or college with the skills I have now, I'd be really successful. Not because I've actually spent more time honing those skills, but because I've learned some of these more foundational skills. And, and, you know, we often use the term soft skills, but things like being able to organize your day and have, you know, accountability, the ability to deal with negative emotions. You know, I've never seen a student personally in my career who really couldn't cut it at university because they didn't have the academic toolkit. But whenever I've seen a student really struggle, it's it's often due to, you know, mental health issues. It's due to, you know, feeling like you don't belong. It's mm-hmm. it's the idea of saying, I don't know how to deal with independence because I have had everything curated for me and now I'm given freedom and I haven't dealt with that. So all of our students who are going to university, we basically do a, a postmortem where we look through and say, you know, hey, where here's all the ways students can struggle. And let's go through and what, you know, what are we going to do with each of these situations? And where do you think your particular is susceptible? And how do we create those environments now? You know, if you're worried about being independent, can we set you up with an internship in Johannesburg? You know, if you're worried about planning, can we, you know, work on really getting the basics down? I agree. The students obviously form like a, I I can imagine they form a very supportive network of alumni as well. So once they've left your program and they're out there in the, in the real world, is there a really good connection between them all that outlasts their time with you? 
you know, when we first started, I, I think, you know, our idea of our original program was actually not meant to be an education program. It was meant to be a community development program. So the idea was in 20 years, and we're halfway through that, we're in our 10th year now, how many transformational leaders would you need to change a community? You know, how many principals and teachers and doctors and social workers and entrepreneurs in a community like ours would you need to really build a foundation to change a community. So it's always been about building a network effect. Mm -hmm. So I think about, we, we've been very fortunate. You know, we, we have alumni who are 22 years old who will come back and sit in classes with 13, 14 year olds every break, and, which amazes me. I, I'm so proud of the level of engagement. Our entire board of directors on the South African side is all alumni. So they make the decisions, they're in charge of the bank accounts. And, you know, they were put in those positions when they were 20, 21 years old and not, not as like a publicity thing, but because this organization is meant to be theirs. So we have our first alumni who is on full-time staff in the next three or four years, almost our entire staff will be made up of alumni. And the idea is that, you know, this is their program. We are just the scaffolding, you know, and it's a long range vision. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, we've talked 15, 20 years but the hope is that we build a core where you know the board is of alumni, the staff is alumni, and then ideally the funding comes through channels of alumni networks. And so you know we're getting there. Every time a student goes, to, particularly to a South African school, there is always somebody there who greets them, shows them around, and you know we're very fortunate. You know South Africa has a, a pretty strong university system, so we send probably 60, 70% of our students in country. And then the rest of the students will attend university overseas, which again, was never part of our model. Like we never really, you know, we were never really built to be an access program. It's just sometimes the students have, you know, have that desire or that passion. So we, we've been able to find some options for them. What do you feel has been the deepest impact of the work so far? And what, what are you personally proudest of? A lot of times it kind of comes in a, a few different uh, like bubbles. Maybe the first thing that jumps out is, is the vibe. When you come to our place, it is one of the most positive, most excited, just most happy places I've ever been. We don't get a lot of visitors because we're about five hours away from Johannesburg. <laughs> but, but when you step on campus, it is... And, and I think part of it is due to that selection process. You know, when you take seven months, you you find who really wants it, but you also have these amazing character filters where our students do the final selection. So they, they do a really good job weeding out students who are rude or arrogant or belittle other people with their intelligence. And, and it's not just at our program. They all go to school with them. They ride the taxis. So there's this amazing filter that says like, hey, if you're going to be here, you have to want it. You have to have some kind of a spark. You know, you have to have something kind of interesting, you know, and you got to be a good person. And so you combine all those factors together and you you have all these just really dynamically kind teenagers that all want to be there. You know, that's one thing we realized, you know, it's 26 hours a week on top of school. So our kids go to full-time school, seven to two, they come two and a half hours weekdays, eight hours on Saturday and four to eight hours on Sunday, every week, no breaks. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's their choice, not mine. <laughs> we, yeah. I'd probably take a, I'd probably take a few more breaks, but <laughs> The thing, though, about that is it's got to be something kids want to come to. There's no pressure. If a student doesn't want to come, there's no requirement. We, we realized when I started out, I was very, I had this idea that I needed to police students, that I needed to make sure how many books are you reading? Are you making the most of this opportunity? And what I realized is that that actually was completely the opposite. You know, what you need to do is create something with the students that they actually want to come to. The idea of our program is this core of, of playful excellence. Uh, it's great to be excellent. It's great to do a really good job. It's it's wonderful to have high standards, 
but can you do it playfully? Can you do it lightheartedly? I think one of my biggest personal pet peeves is this idea of this cult of busyness that we live in this world where everybody, it's almost like a badge of honor. You know, if you tell people you're happy and relaxed, it's almost like there's something wrong with you. I think that we've really said that in the end of the day, if you can't be joyful with whatever you're doing, then let's figure that out. And, and I think actually this year, the playful side has probably taken precedent over the excellence. So many of these kinds of students have a drive to be excellent. You don't really have to work on that, that lever. Like that, that little knob is already turned up to nine or 10. But it's like, can you help them find a way to be joyful in what they're doing and just not take themselves so seriously? I think a teenager who, you know, has completely lost themselves in like, I have to do this and I have to do this. And it's like, you don't have to do anything. You're going to be fine. <laughs> That's such a breath of fresh air, honestly, from the kinds of schools I've worked in sometimes in the past. That's absolutely magical to hear. I just hooked onto that phrase, dynamically kind, which I think sums up exactly what you're doing. Maybe but being dynamically kind is such a an underused resource <laughs> in society. And right now, I mean, I'm going to ask you in a minute about what you're doing as you're off site, I know at the moment, but right now it's so needed. And, and, we, and we've just had this complete kind of fall from that system of being falsely busy or I guess caught up in the schedules that we would usually have held. And that's all come crashing to a halt for so many education models that it's really nice. It's really refreshing to hear that. I think a lot of educators kind of breathe a sigh of relief. I have found this has been such an interesting time during the this bizarre period of life we're living in right now that the students I find that struggle most are my most high achieving and my most ambitious students because they're so used to having tangible carrots that they can kind of run towards. As soon as you take that away and you know this week we're taking a week off and we're doing a pause and ponder and the entire goal is just to stop. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and who are you when no one's looking? Who are you when there's no prize? I, it is a really, I think, transformational thing for anyone, adults, students, to just stop and say, if there isn't anything I'm working towards, what do I actually want to do? I, I like the, the thought experiment of saying, hey, you know, if I locked you in this room with the internet for 48 hours, what would you actually do? Like you say you love marine biology and this and this, but would you sit and watch music videos? Well, then that's what you care about. And, and we need to be real with ourselves. I think so often we know the sculpted answers we're supposed to say. And I think this time is unearthing for a lot of people that they haven't really got to know themselves. They haven't really got to know what they genuinely care about. And I think that's a it's a wonderful experience. And I, I'm in, this is obviously an incredibly tragic moment for the world, but I, I'm quite confident our program will come back stronger because of it, because we were forced to stop and slow down. And I think we're actually going to build moments like this into our curriculum moving forward. It's funny that you say that because I, I just spoke to another school here in Barcelona who are doing exactly that. They're building in Wellness Wednesdays now as a regular weekly occurrence where the Wednesday afternoon will have no teaching. It will, it will just be based on interests and self-development and um, fun things and play. And, you know, I'm reminded of another educator who said to me recently, he wanted to create the kind of classroom where if he couldn't make it into the classroom, the students would have just gotten going on their own. And for him, yeah. that was the sign, the signal of being an amazing educator or transmitting that love of learning and, you know, enjoyment of whatever task it is that you're doing, but you don't have to be doing it. You're doing it because you want to be doing it. And I think that is exactly what your students sound like they're doing. One thing I like to think about is like, would I want to attend my class? <laughs> and so often I find the answer is no. <laughs> and 
and then I realize, oh, well, then I shouldn't, then I shouldn't do it. You know, like I, if I can't help create a space that I actually genuinely am excited to be in, how do I expect a student to be excited about it? And you're, you're exactly right. We have this, uh, we have this day on Tuesday. So every Tuesday, which is, we, we take Monday off. So Tuesday is our first day. We, we call it Howard Thurman day. And Howard Thurman has this wonderful quote, probably messed this up too, but I'll try. Uh, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And we battle with this day. It's the, it's, the, it's the hardest part of our curriculum because students instantly will start doing academics or they'll just, you know, they'll use it as a, as a fill-in day because there's lots of stuff to do. And, and we've really had to fight back and say, no, like you have to be excited today. <laughs> you have to choose to do something that you really want to do. And it, it doesn't really matter what it is, but there's an amazing value of saying that, you know, it's important to be excited. It's important to come alive. Going through that battle, students have realized that it's pretty amazing to actually find a student who says like, I didn't know, but you know, I really love the environment or I really love poetry. And and once you find that like thing that drives you and you you always want a student who's like, pick something that makes you walk a little faster to get to class. That's what we're looking for. And we found it and it's all different things. You know, again, some of our coding students, some of them will like, you know, we'll have to kick them out the door. And it's like, we want to create more moments like that. And ideally in a perfect world, that's actually what education becomes. Because, you know, when you take off all the pressure, you take off all the rewards, you take all the transactional nature of education where you say, oh, well, I go to school because I get a piece of paper and that paper will get me here and then that will get me a job. When you take that out, you find that a lot of us have not learned to follow our muse or follow our excitement. And so we're trying to kind of plant that seed, you know, again, like reading. It's like you can get kids to read a lot of books, but it's like, you know, when they're 25 and they have a busy day, are they still going to want to read? And it's like, I'd, I'd be more proud if a student reads less as a 15-year-old, but we get that seed planted somewhere deep inside and it grows to where they actually become someone who loves to read. And I think you can look at that with almost everything is if you take the, the long range view and say, okay, it is what you're doing now actually building towards a habit or is it like, you know, you're doing it because this is part of the transaction of what this education experience means. Yeah, you're talking about flow there. And I, I would argue, yeah, it's it's so important just for everybody, not just for adolescents, but if if imagine if more adults were, were working in that way, doing something that that they would devour <laughs> just from yeah. the joy of doing it. Are you are you not thinking about doing coaching for adults here in this program? <laughs> There's a, probably a lot of people who need you. I have thought about the idea of, you know, I mean, I don't actually, I'm not a core classroom teacher at this point, you know, so I I do some support stuff and, you know, I run like a board game club and I do hiking trips and I, you know, I do, I do things that I find, you know, I I love experiences. So I've been thinking about, you know, kind of transferring my role from in the classroom, but, you know, as our students now are getting into career, you realize it never ends. So, you know, a lot of our initial students, you know, from 10 years ago are now entering the work world. And I actually think that's the most dangerous time to lose inspiration. Like the, the, getting your first job and the the requirements of becoming a, a real big kid, you know, becoming an adult can really squash. And, and so we've been thinking a lot about this idea of like, how do you keep that energy and how do you inject that into the students? So, you know, like everything, we're still trying to figure it out and we're kind of bumbling our way along the journey. What other educational movements have inspired you? Because you, you speak very naturally in terms of the way you view, I guess, adolescence and you understand the trials of being a young person, I think, very deeply in a way that only really educators do. So who's inspired you and, and where have your learnings and teachings come from? 
I try to read as much as I can about, you know, educational literature and what's going on. Um, and my, my girlfriend who is like my partner in running the organization is actually, she probably should be on this call. I mean, I think she's really <laughs> been the, the driver of a lot of the really innovative classroom activities. I, I think a lot of my inspiration though, has come from, I'll, I'll say two things. One mindfulness. I do, I mean, obviously it's, it's very in vogue now in like Silicon Valley and, you know, in education, it's starting to kind of seep in, but I do think the ability for students to be aware of their emotions and be with themselves is a really transferable skill to almost everything. So I think a lot of the meditation teachers and thinkers in that space have been really impactful. And then the other big thing is just I'm really inspired by happy adults. You know, I, I don't like the term successful because as soon as you say successful adults, you think, okay, well, how much money do they make or what career do they have? And, you know, I know doctors who are incredibly joyful beacons of hope and inspiration. And I know doctors who are miserable, unhealthy people. And so I don't necessarily think it matters what you do, but I oftentimes, you know, I'll, I'll look at even some of my, my friends or some of my peers in this education space. And Anytime I see someone who's really happy and really making a positive impact and has a lightness and a joy to them, I love to sit down and just say, you know, what do you do? What inspired you? And so I, I think a lot of seeing what their routines are and what things they do to kind of get themselves up in the morning, how they've avoided, you know, a lot of the pitfalls of adulthood. I think that's probably been my biggest inspiration, to be honest. It's really helpful with students to just allow them to go through their thoughts and experiences. And just once they have the vocabulary of like a mindfulness, self-awareness, it's really cool to see how much they transfer it. I mean, that's the beauty of young people is once they get a foundational skill, they will use it all over the place. It just, the roots get into like the way they think about the world. And, you know, so we start with 13 or 14 year olds who have had no experience with it. And again, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not a, a great meditation teacher by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it is just giving them the verbiage to be able to explain their emotions and the difficulties. And especially in communities like ours, where students have had so much, I mean, so much strife and so many challenges, having a language to talk about it that's empowering is I think probably the most powerful tool we've given students. I asked Corey to describe one of his students who stands out in his mind as someone with a fairly typical story. As you'll see, she's anything but typical. The first student that jumped to mind is, is a young lady in our grade 10 program. And, and I think the, the thing that you know, stands out is you know, she's, a, she's a top student at her school. She works really hard. She comes to our program. But the thing that stands out about her is just the the diversity of interest is one thing. I mean, you know, she's part of my board game club. She's part of a green team and doing environmental projects. You know, she's part of, you know, doing the math Olympiad, an incredible diversity of interest for somebody so young. But the, the first thing, every student does entrepreneurial service projects, which the key is entrepreneurial. Like it's, it's, we don't want them putting in you know, it's not that it's bad to put in time, but it's, it's putting in your mental energy, creating something that could fail. So she last year around Christmas time decided that she wanted to buy Christmas presents for an, an orphanage. And, and so she created this project, you know, this is a student whose family lives on their, they live on less than $30 a month. And, you know, she raised $120, just, you know, an obscene amount of money. I mean, it's more than a month's salary in our area and bought 30 kids Christmas presents. Hmm. And, I don't know if she got a Christmas present that year. And it, it, it just that kind of idea that says, Hey, I work hard. I, you know, I have interests. I'm, you know, I'm a really good person, but I don't have to wait till I'm 30 years old 
to make a positive impact. I don't have to wait until some point. I can do something good now. And, and I think that is our student. We we talk a lot about the idea that success is great. And you know, we're we're very proud of like what the students have accomplished. But impact comes from every direction, you know. I think that you can make a, a really deep positive impact right now. And not just in doing service projects, you know, being kind to your mother and father is a, it makes a huge difference in their life. You know, saying a gratitude to one of your teachers. There's just so many points where you realize that you can have a little bit of a, a little positive touch in people's lives. And I think that idea of permeating that out and starting to kind of say, how can we build a network of positivity? I, I think that's when I think of one of our students, that's probably the first thing that jumps out. Definitely dynamically kind. Yeah, I love that term. I mean, it's, I think the idea of being kind often is uh, don't be mean. It's not actually that you are doing anything on the affirmative side. It's just avoiding this certain subset that are just not positive. And, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm most proud of with our students is like every time they get offered you know, an opportunity, you know, we, we send a lot of students to like Yale programs or something. And almost every single student who's ever went, I get a call or a, a a message from one of the facilitators of just like, that was a really kind person. You know, they, they went up and said gratitude to their lecture and that lecture hadn't got anyone saying thank you the whole year. Or, you know, they went and talked to a kid who didn't have a lot of friends and that just really meant something. And I think when you ask me what makes me proud, I think those calls, I think we get credit, we get the pat on the back because the kid went to the Yale program, but it's, I'm much more proud of what they do when they're there. And, and that, that kind of feeds into one of the ideas we talk a lot about, which is being, you know, extraordinary. So, you know, like you can become a, a doctor or a teacher or a principal. And that often as an educator, we say we did a good job. You know, it's like, okay, well, we, that's the accomplishment. We hit the, the, the success check. But it, it's actually what you do in those spaces. Being a doctor or being a great doctor, you know, being a, you know, a teacher or being a really dynamic school changing teacher, that's actually where we win the game of life. You know, that's actually where the success is. It's in what you do once you're in the spaces. Our students, you know, I, I think have done a really, really good job being, you know, and I, I'll steal your term, but they being dynamically kind. There is this saying in society that says, in the person that's been through it is most wise. My name is Tenji Wendemande. I was born in Lenkomazi. Growing up without a mother, it was really hard to find someone female to relate to. The fact that my dad pushed so hard for me to go to school through whatever challenges we had, and the fact that I actually had support like Imagine Scholar throughout my high school life was very motivating. When Imagine Scholar came into my life, I was very excited at the opportunity to acquire more information and learn about the world. But also I've had the opportunities to travel. Had I not been part of Imagine Scholar, I wasn't even going to go to varsity. Imagine Scholar came and turned everything around. <laughs> to me, success means reaching your potential. At the same time, being able to inspire other people. Knowledge is power, man. And I think Imagine Scholar does a very good job of finding talent and turns that talent into some of the most remarkable people in the world. I've got a much better sense now of what a transformative experience it must be, but not, not because it's transforming students who were less than kind into kind or less than mindful into mindful, but because... That the effect of what they've done with you goes then and, and puts roots into other communities. And I think that that is something to be incredibly proud of. And I, I don't think I'd realized when, you know, when you were introduced to me as somebody who ran what I thought was an access program, 
I obviously thought at first about those metrics from the kind of regular thing that college counselors are measured on and that our students are measured on. So, I mean, I can imagine that we share a similar view here, but what would you change <laughs> if you could about the way we all view education and what it's for? I think one thing that I, I really deeply believe in is, is an idea that, you know, we often talk about that talent is evenly distributed. We say that, you know, it's not, it's not that San Francisco happens to breed more doctors and computer scientists than Tehran. You know, kids are evenly distributed that, you know, have this ability, but resources are not. And that, that's often something we think about when we're, you know, in, you know, education programs in places like South Africa. But I think that the, the part that we miss, and this is maybe the, the issue that I most care about right now, is I think we miss that the idea that the ability to make impact is evenly distributed everywhere in the world. And it comes in all shapes and sizes. The students I'm most proud of didn't necessarily go to fancy colleges, but they found personal ways to make an impact. And I think sometimes we celebrate success over impact. And I think that that is a great detriment to the world because it disenfranchises a lot of people that aren't going to hit the, they're not going to hit the success metric for whatever reason, their unique abilities don't necessarily parlay into that. And when I look at the, if you said name the five most successful people, you know, there's no part of me that thinks what career do they have or what external validation, you know, I think about, yeah, are they, are they happy? Are they, are they good parents? Do they have joy? Do they, you know, find ways to create glee and, and happiness in the people around them? And I think the thing is when you take the emphasis off of success, what you basically create is that there is an infinite amount of ways we can help young people create impact. As you said earlier, it's not that we, we found the students that had the ability to be positive or motivated, I just think we gave them the, we said it's okay. <laughs> well, you know, we, we, we gave them the go ahead that, you know what, it's okay to focus on being happy. And it's, you know, gratitude makes an impact, not just for you, but for the people you're grateful for. And I, I think that sometimes I'm frustrated that a lot of education is about sorting kids? Can we find the best ones? Can we exclude the kids who aren't good enough? And I don't see the point of it. You look at institutions, you know, especially the elite institutions, and you say, okay, Harvard, you you found the best kids and you gave them the best education. And then they went and became consultants and worked on Wall Street. And I think if you took a random sample of kids and you said, what impact did they make in 40 years? It's like that, that to me is success. And I think Harvard's in a study said that, by the way. The longitudinal happiness study that they did said, hey, it's about your networks and your friends and family and your relationships to others and having purpose. (laughs) And and we all we all know these things, but it's like we can't get outside of the the traps. And I and I think it's important for institutions, you know, you know, even organizations like us to celebrate the small things and not always put up that a kid got a certain scholarship or, or things like that, because I think it just perpetuates this idea that that success is in some way like the the end parameter, but success is the beginning. You know, success opens the door, but it, it's not actually how you live. You know, what you create in this house that's inside of the door is what matters. And, and, and I think that that is where I hope education goes. I hope that we find a way to be more inclusive to different ways that people can be positive and make an impact in the world. And I think, you know, when I look back on my career, I think those are the things that I'm going to be most proud of is, you know, the kindnesses and, you know, the people being good parents and all the little things, not that, you know, this person became a big name or went to a fancy place or anything like that. 
Producing dynamically kind students is a claim that many schools would like to make, but few schools would celebrate success that comes in so many forms. Imagine scholars' metrics for their own students' success are not only refreshing, they are radically needed. By allowing their students to escape the ritual sorting of skills and achievements that regular school can sometimes be, and by giving them a new space and support to celebrate all forms of their success, the small things included, we can see that their students extend their own kindness, and they exemplify service leadership that has much further-reaching impact. Corey comes across as a natural educator, yet someone who never formally trained in teaching, and perhaps it's also why he feels less constrained by models that can sometimes hold educators back from taking leaps of faith. When talking to Corey, I was reminded of the work of the legendary educator Ron Berger, one of the leading proponents of project-based learning in the 1970s, whose work still continues to be learned from today. Berger's calm, encouraging manner in the classroom led his students to take risks, extend themselves, and be vulnerable, resulting in what he called world-class work. Berger's theory was that work that was world-class could only be produced in settings where there was a culture of respect and belonging, where students could be their true selves, where their work was gathered to be meaningful and would make impact in the world, and where there was a real genuine audience for it. Berger also lived in one small Massachusetts town and taught there for 25 years at the same school, meaning that he taught almost everyone under the age of 50 in his town at some point, including his nurse, his firefighter and his accountant, who were all former students. He says he could care less about what their third grade test scores were like, but what mattered to him is did they learn the values of doing high-quality work with an ethical mindset. Corey and his team at Imagine Scholar have understood these simple values, and they're proud of each of their students, whether they have travelled far and wide or stayed close to home, because the seeds of change they planted in their students have a knock-on effect in every community that they join. And there again, I'm reminded of Ron Berger's little Massachusetts community of nurses, firefighters and plumbers, who could save his life one day, and in that, the higher meaning of what education can be, helping those around us to do good work that you could trust with your life. You can read more about the work of Imagine Scholar or donate to support their programme by visiting imaginescholar.org. In next week's episode, I meet Edith Johnson and Nell Byron, the co-founders of Be Her Lead, an organisation that aims to empower women in teaching to build resilience and raise the aspirations of girls in their schools. And as always, wherever you're listening from, thanks so much for tuning in. See you next time. You can stay up to date on Piloted by following us on Instagram and Facebook at The Piloted Podcast, or you can say hi on Twitter, just at The Piloted. Thanks for tuning in.